Chapter 7 Kitty Arrow lay beneath her blankets, her arms beneath her head, glowering up at the red moon, the laughing red moon. Kit knew very well why the moon laughed. Snipe hunt, Kitty Ara fumed aloud, with a vicious snap of her teeth over the words. It's a goddamn snipe hunt. Tossing off the blankets, for she could not sleep, she stomped around the small fire, drank some water, then, bored and frustrated, she sat back down to poke at the red-glowing charred logs with a stick. Sending a shower of sparks into the night sky, she accidentally doused what remained of the small blaze. Kitty Ara was remembering a snipe hunt, remembered the prank, which had been played on a gullible caramon. All the companions were in on the prank, with the exception of Sturm Brightblade, who, if he had been told about it, would have lectured them interminably and ended by spoiling their fun. He would have let the snipe out of the bag, so to speak. Whenever the friends came together, Kittyara, Tannis, Raistland, Tasselhoff, and Flint spoke of the glories of the snipe hunt, of the excitement of the chase, the ferocity of the snipe when cornered, the tenderness of snipe meat, which was said to rival chicken in flavor. Caramon listened with round eyes, open mouth, and growling stomach. The snipe can only be caught by the light of Solinari, Tanis said. You must wait in the woods, quiet as a sleepwalking elf with a bag in your hand, Flint counseled. And you must call, Come to the bag for a treat, snipe. Come to the bag for a treat. For you see, Caramon, Kiriara told her brother, Snipes are so gullible that when they hear these words, they will run straight to you and run right into the bag. At that point, you must tie the ends of the sack together swiftly, Raistlin instructed, and hold the bag fast, for once the snipe realizes he has been tricked, he will try to free himself, and if he does, he will tear apart his captor. How big are they? Caramon asked, looking a little daunted. Oh, no larger than a squirrel, Tasselhoff assured him. But they have teeth sharp as wolves and claws sharp as zombies and a great spiked tail like a scorpion. Be sure to take a good strong sack, lad, Flint advised, and was then forced to muzzle the kender, who was suddenly overcome with a severe attack of the giggles. But aren't the rest of you coming? Caramon asked, surprised. The snipe is sacred to elves, Tannis said solemnly. I am forbidden to kill one. I'm too old, Flint said with a sigh. My snipe hunting days are over. It is up for you to uphold the honor of solace. I killed my snipe when I was twelve, Kittyara said proudly. Gee! Caramon was impressed, also downcast. He was already eighteen and had never heard of a snipe before now. He held up his head. I won't let you down. We know you won't, my brother, Raistlin said, laying his hand on his twin's broad shoulder. We are all very proud of you. 
How they laughed that night, all of them together in Flint's house, picturing Caramon standing out there all night, pale and quivering in the darkness, calling out, Come to my bag for a treat, Snipe. And they laughed still more in the morning when Caramon appeared, breathless with excitement, holding up a bag containing the elusive Snipe, which was wriggling a great deal. Why is it giggling? Caramon asked, peering at the sack. That's a sound made by all captured Snipe, Raceland said, barely able to speak for his suppressed laughter. Tell us of your hunt, my brother. Caramon told them how he had called, and how the snipe had come rushing out of the darkness and jumped into his sack. How he, Caramon, had bravely pulled together the end of the sack, and, after a struggle, subdued the vicious snipe. Should we hit it over the head before we let it out? Caramon asked, brandishing a stick. No, the snipe squeaked. Yes, Flint roared, making an unsuccessful attempt to snatch the stick from Caramon. At this, Tannis, feeling the prank had gone far enough, freed the snipe, who looked very much like Tasselhoff Burfoot. No one laughed louder than Caramon, once the joke was explained to him, all of them assuring him that they had fallen for it. All except Kit, who said that she, for one, had never been such a booby as to go on a snipe hunt. At least, not until now. I might as well be standing in these blasted mountains with a sack in my hand calling, Here, dragon, here, I have a treat for you. She swore in disgust, kicked irritably at the charred remains of the log, and wondered again as she had wondered for the past seven days, ever since she had left Sanction, why General Ariakas had sent her on this ridiculous mission. Kittyara believed in dragons about as much as she believed in snipes. Dragons! She snorted in disgust. The people of Sanction talked of nothing else but dragons. People claimed to worship dragons. The Temple of the Dark Queen was formed in the image of a dragon. Bailiff had once asked Kit if she would be afraid to meet a dragon. Yet to Kittyara's knowledge, none of these people had ever set eyes upon a dragon, a real, fire-breathing, brimstone-eating dragon. The only dragon they knew was a dragon carved from the cold stone of a mountain. When Ariakas had first told her she was meeting a dragon, Kit had laughed. It is no joke, Uthmetar, General Ariakas had told her, but she had seen his dark eyes glint. Then, still thinking it was a joke and he was making sport of her, she had been angry. The glint had disappeared from the General's dark eyes, cold and cruel and empty. I have given you a mission, Uthmetar, General Ariakas had told her, his voice as cold and empty as his eyes. Take it or leave it. She had taken it. What choice did she have? She had requested an escort of soldiers. General Ariakas had refused brusquely. He could not, he said, afford to lose any more men on this mission. Did Uthmetar feel incapable of handling this assignment on her own? Perhaps he would find someone else, 
someone more interested in gaining his favor. Kitiara had accepted General Ariakas's challenge to go to the Kalkist Mountains, where this alleged dragon named Immolatus lived. The dragon had lived here for centuries, or so Ariakas told her, prior to being awakened by the Queen of Darkness. Kitiara had no choice but to accept. Her first three days out of sanction, Kitiara had been on her guard, watching for the ambush she was certain was coming, the ambush ordered by Ariakas, the ambush meant to test her fighting skills. She vowed that she would not be the one left holding the bag, or, if she was, that there would be heads inside. But three days passed quietly. No one sprang at her out of the darkness. No one jumped her from behind a bush except an irate chipmunk, disturbed in his springtime foraging. Ariakas had provided her with a map showing her destination, a map, he said, came from the priests of the temple of Lurkesis, a map revealing the location of the cavern of the supposed dragon. The nearer she drew to her destination, the more desolate became the countryside. Kitiara began to be uneasy. Certainly, if she had chosen a location where one might find a dragon, this would be it. On the fourth day, even the few hopeful vultures that had been keeping a hungry eye on her since sanction disappeared with ominous-sounding croaks as she climbed farther up the side of the mountain. Not a bird, not an animal, not a bug did Kit see on her fifth day. No flies buzzed around her meal of dried trail beef. No ants came to drag off the crumbs of wayward bread. She had traveled far and fast. Sanction was out of sight behind the peaks of the second mountain, its peak hidden by the perpetual cloud of steam that hung over the Lords of Doom. Sometimes she could feel the ground tremble beneath her feet. She had put this down to the rumblings of the unquiet mountains, but now she wondered. Perhaps it was the rumblings of a great worm— turning and twisting in his dreams of treasure, dreams of death. On the sixth day, Kitiara began to feel truly alarmed. The ground on which she walked was empty of life, barren. Admittedly, she was up past the tree line and had left spring's warmth far below. But she should have found a few scraggly bushes clinging precariously to the rocks in the sunshine, patches of snow in the shadows. No snow remained, and she wondered what had caused it to melt. The one bush she did find on the trail was blackened, the rocks scorched, as if a forest fire had swept the side of the mountain. But there could not be a forest fire in an area where there were no trees. She was puzzling over this phenomenon, had just about decided it must have been a lightning strike when she rounded a gigantic granite boulder and stumbled upon the corpse. Kit started and fell back a pace. She had seen plenty of dead men before, but none quite like this. The body had been consumed in fire, a blaze so hot that it had left behind only the larger bones of the body, such as the skull and the ribs, the spine and the legs. 
smaller bones, those of the toes and fingers, were burned away. The corpse lay face down. He had been fleeing his enemy when the fire blasted him, searing the flesh from his body. Kitiara recognized the emblem on the blackened helm that still covered the head. The same emblem was on his sword, which lay several paces behind him. She guessed that if she turned over the corpse to look at the breastplate in which lay his bones, like a rib roast on a metal platter, she would see the same emblem yet again, the black-feathered eagle with outstretched wings, the emblem of General Ariakas. Kitiara began to believe. You might have the last laugh after all, Karaman, she said ruefully, squinting in the sunlight to scan the top of the mountain. She saw nothing except blue sky, but feeling exposed and vulnerable on the side of the steep mountain, she crouched behind the granite boulder, noted as she did so that where the boulder itself had been touched by the flames, the rock had started to melt. Damn it all to the abyss and back, Kit said to herself, as she sat down on the ground in the boulder's shadow, with the charred corpse keeping her gloomy company. A dragon. I'll be damned, a real live dragon. Oh, stop it, Kit, she scolded herself. It's impossible. You'll be believing in ghouls next. The poor bastard was hit by lightning. But she was lying to herself. She could see the man clearly, fleeing from pursuit, flinging down his sword in the panicked flight, its blade of good solid steel, useless against such a terrible enemy. Kitiara reached her hand into a leather pouch marked with the emblem of the Black Eagle and pulled out a small scroll. Vellum rolled tight and thrust through a ring. She regarded the scroll with frowning thoughtfulness, chewing her nether lip. General Ariakas had given her the scroll, telling her that she was to deliver it to Immolatus. Furious at the deceit being played upon her, Kit had taken the scroll without looking at it, thrust it angrily into her pouch. She had listened with barely concealed scorn to Ariakas telling her what he knew of dragons, just as she herself had told Caramon all she knew of snipes. Kitiara examined the ring carefully. It was a signet ring, a signet in the shape of a five-headed dragon. Ooh, boy! said Kitiara. She wiped the sweat from her brow. The five-headed dragon, ancient symbol for Queen Tachesis. Kit hesitated a moment, then slid the scroll from out the ring. Carefully, gingerly, she unrolled it, took a quick look at what it said. Immolatus, I command you to obey the summons I send to you by this messenger. Four times before you have spurned my command. There will not be a fifth. I am losing patience. Take upon yourself a human form and return to sanction with the bearer of this, my ring, there to receive your orders from General Ariakas, soon to be general of my dragon armies. This order, scribed by Whirlish, High Cleric of the Black Robes, 
in the name of Tachesis, Queen of Darkness, Queen of the Five Dragons, Queen of the Abyss, and soon to be Queen of Kryn. Oh, damn, said Kittyara. Oh, damn it all. Propping her elbows on her bent knees, she bowed her head in her hands. I'm a dolt, an idiot. But who would have guessed? What have I done? How did I get myself into this? So much, she added, lifting her head to look at the corpse, her crooked smile straight and hard and bitter. For all my hopes, all my ambitions, this is where it will end. On the side of a mountain, my bones fused to the rock. But who would have guessed Ariakis was telling the truth? A dragon, and I'm to be its goddamn messenger. She sat for a long time on the summit of the desolate mountainside, gazing out into the empty blue sky that seemed so near, watched the sun slide from the sky, looking as if it were setting beneath her. So far was she above the horizon. The air was starting to cool off rapidly. She shivered. The goose flesh raised on her arms beneath the fine-spun wool tunic she wore underneath her chain-mail corselet. She had brought with her a woolen cloak, lined with shaggy wool, but she did not unpack it. The air is liable to warm up soon, she said to herself, and a hint of the crooked smile returned. Too soon and too warm for comfort. Shaking off her lethargy, she pulled the cloak from her bag and, wrapping the sheepskin around her shoulders, she settled down to study, with more attention, the map given her by General Ariakis. She located all the landmarks, the mountain peak which was split in twain as if by some giant axe blade, a jutting crag thrusting out of the side of the mountain, looking like a hooked nose. Now that she knew where to look, she located the cave without too much difficulty. The opening to the dragon's lair was hidden beneath the overhang, not far from where she sat. A short walk over some rough terrain, but not difficult to reach. Solinari was waning this night, but would shed light enough for her to find her way among the rocks. Kit rose to her feet, looked down the side of the mountain. It had been in her mind to take the easy way out, to simply step off the edge and into the void below. The easy way out, the coward's way out. Lie, cheat, steal, the world winks at such faults, her father had once told her. But the world despises a coward. This might be her last battle, but she was determined it would be a glorious one. She turned her back on the sun and looked ahead into the gathering darkness. She had no plan of attack. She couldn't see that a plan would be of any great use. Nothing to do except barge in the front door. Placing her hand on the hilt of her sword, she set her jaw, gritted her teeth, and took a determined step forward. An immense beast appeared at the edge of the lip beneath the overhang, spreading its wings, massive wings, wings that dwarfed the eagle. The beast took flight, soaring into the air.
Red scales caught the last of the afterglow, glinting and gleaming and sparkling like cinders flying up from the blazing log or a gentlewoman's rubies, cast into the sunlight or drops of blood. A snout, a tail long and sinuous, a body so ponderous and heavy that it seemed impossible the wings could lift it, a spiked mane, black, against the garish dying light, enormous powerful legs and feet with long sharp claws, a seeking eye of flame. For the first time in her twenty-eight years of life, Kit tasted fear. Her stomach clenched, sending hot bile surging into her dry mouth. Her leg muscles spasmed. She nearly collapsed. Her hand on the sword hilt went wet and nerveless. The only thought her brain could think was, run, hide, flee. If there had been a hole nearby, she would have crawled into it. At that moment, even the leap into the void off the side of the mountain appeared to her to be a wise and prudent thing to do. Kittyara crouched down in the shadow of the boulder and huddled there, shivering the cold sweat beating on her forehead. Her chest was tight. Her heart raced. She found it difficult to breathe. She could not take her eyes from the dragon, a sight that was awful, beautiful, appalling. He was forty feet long at least. Stretched out end to end, he would have covered the parade ground and still lapped over into the temple. She feared the dragon had seen her. Immolatus had no idea she was there. She might have been a gnat, plastered against the rock for all he knew or cared. He was flying out into the night to hunt. Several days had passed since his last meal, a meal that had, by great good fortune, come to him. After dining on the messenger... Immolatus had been too lazy to seek more food until hunger awoke him from his pleasant dreams, dreams of plunder and fire and death. Feeling his shriveled stomach flapping against his ribs, he waited hopefully to see if another toothsome morsel might enter his cave. None did. Immolatus fretted a bit, deeply regretted having indulged in sport with one of the soldiers, chasing the terror-stricken man down the cliff face, watching him burn like a living torch. If the dragon had been thinking ahead, he would have kept his captive alive until he was ready to dine again. Ah, well, the dragon mused grumpily, no use crying over spilt blood. He took to the air, circled once around his peak to make certain all was well. Kittyara held perfectly still, frozen like a rabbit when it sees the dogs. She ceased to breathe, willed her heart not to beat so loudly, for it seemed to echo around her like thunder. Kit willed the dragon to fly away, fly far away. It seemed he would do so, for he wheeled as if to catch the warm air currents rising up the mountainside. Kit was close to sobbing with relief when suddenly her throat constricted. The dragon shifted his flight. He sniffed the air, his huge head with its red eyes turning this way and that, 
looking for the scent that made his mouth water. Sheep. This blasted sheepskin cloak. Kittyara knew as well as if she had been sitting between the dragon's shoulder blades that the beast smelled sheep, that he had an appetite for sheep for dinner, but would not be too disappointed to discover his mistake, a human in sheep's clothing. The huge snout turned in her direction, and Kittyara could see the sharp fangs as the mouth opened in anticipation. Queen of Darkness, Kit prayed, asking for help for the first time in her life. I am here by your command. I am your servant. If you want this mission to succeed, then you sure as hell better do something. The dragon drew nearer, darker than night, blotting out the first pale stars with its enormous wings. The deeper the darkness, the redder its baleful eyes. Helpless, unable to move, unable even to draw her sword, Kittyara watched death fly closer. There came a frantic bleeding, hooves beat against rock. The dragon dove. The wind of its passing flattened Kit against the boulder. The wings gave a single flap. A death cry echoed among the rocks. The dragon's tail twitched back and forth in violent pleasure. The dragon wheeled in the sky, flew back over her. Warm blood dripped onto Kittyara's upturned face. A freshly killed mountain goat dangled from the dragon's claws. Emolatus was pleased with his catch and his luck. He had never before known a mountain goat to venture this near his cave. He hauled the bleeding carcass back into his cavern, where he could dine at his leisure. He wondered a little about the strong scent of sheep he had detected on the mountainside, an odd scent mingled with human, but he much preferred goat meat to mutton any day, or human for that matter. There was generally little meat on human bones, and he had to work hard for what was there, ripping away the armor to get at it armor that always left the taste of metal in his mouth. Back in his lair, he settled his large body onto the rocks, which should have been treasure, or so he always thought resentfully, and tore into the goat. For the moment, Kittyara was safe. Weak with relief, she huddled on the ground beneath the boulder, unable to move. Her muscles, tight with adrenaline, remained clenched. She could not loosen her hand from the hilt of her sword. By sheer effort of will, she forced herself to relax, calmed her racing heartbeat, caught her gasping breath. First, she had a debt to pay. Queen Tachesis, Kittyara said humbly, looking up into the night sky sacred to the goddess. Thank you. Stay with me, and I will not fail you. Her score settled, Kittyara pulled the sheepskin more closely around her and, lying in the starlit darkness, thought back on her talk with General Ariakis, a talk to which she had paid scant attention. She forced herself to try to remember what he had told her about dragons. Chapter 8 The goat had been a nice plump one. 
pleased with his meal and the fact that he hadn't had to work overly hard to catch it, Immolatus settled down upon his rocky bed. Imagining his rocks were piles of treasure, he went back to sleep, sought refuge once more in his dreams. Most of the other dragons dedicated to the service of the Queen of Darkness had been pleased when Tachesis woke them from their long-enforced sleep. Not so Immolatus. His dreams of the past century had been dreams of fire, of driving hapless humans and elves, dwarves and kender before him, of blasting their miserable dwellings to kindling, of scooping up their children in his great maw and crunching down on their tender flesh, of toppling castles and impaling screaming knights upon his sharp claws, claws that could tear through the strongest armor, dreams of sifting through the rubble after it had cooled, picking up the sparkling jewels and silver chalices, magical swords and golden bracers, piling them onto the few wagons he had taken care not to set ablaze, and then carrying the wagons in his claws back to his lair. His cave had once been stuffed with treasure, so stuffed that he could hardly squeeze his own body inside. Huma, that wicked devil knight Huma and his accursed wizard Magius, had put an end to Immolatus's fun. They had nearly put an end to Immolatus. The Dark Queen, Cursor Blackheart, had called on Immolatus to join her in what was supposed to have been the war to end all wars a war wherein the irritating scourge of the Salamnic Knights would be obliterated, their foul kind wiped from the face of the long-suffering world. The Dark Queen had assured her dragons that they could not lose, that they were invincible. Immolatus had thought this sounded like fun. He was a young dragon then. He had left his treasure trove and gone to join his brethren, Blue dragons, red and green, the white dragons of the snow-capped south, black dragons of the shadows. The war had not gone as planned. The cunning humans had invented a weapon, a lance whose bright and magical silver metal was as painful to the dragon's eyes as its sharp tip was deadly to the dragon's heart. The horrid knights carried this terrible weapon into battle. Immolatus and his kind fought valiantly, but, in the end, Huma and his dragonlance forced Queen Tachesis to retreat from this plane of existence, forced her to make a desperate pact. Her dragons would not be put to death, but would sleep the centuries away, and, so as not to upset the balance of the world, the good dragons, those of silver and of gold, would also sleep. Immolatus's right wing had been torn by the cruel lance, his left hind leg ripped by the horrible lance, his stomach slashed by the infamous lance. The dragon limped back to his cave, his blood falling like rain on the ground, and there he found that in his absence thieves had stolen away his treasure. His bellows of outrage split the mountain peak, he vowed before he went to sleep that he would never again have anything to do with humans unless it was to rip off their heads and munch on their bones. 
He would have nothing more to do with the Queen of Darkness either, the Queen who had betrayed her servants. His wounds healed during his centuries-long sleep. His body regained its strength. He did not forget his vow. Seven years ago, the spirit of Queen Tachesis, now trapped in the abyss, had come to her dragons, had called upon Immolatus to waken from his long sleep and join her once again in yet another war to end all wars. The spirit of Queen Tachesis stood in his cave, his pitifully empty cave, and made her demands. Immolatus tried to bite her. Unable to do so, it is difficult to sink one's teeth into a spirit. The dragon rolled over and went back to sleep, back to his lovely dreams of mangled humans and a cave filled with gold and pearls and sapphires. But sleep wouldn't come, or if it did, he wasn't allowed to enjoy it. Tachesis was always about, annoying him, sending messengers with orders and dispatches. Why wouldn't the woman just leave him alone? Hadn't he sacrificed enough for her cause? How many of her messengers did he have to torch to make his point? He was recalling fondly the last human he had watched go up in smoke, was smiling over the memory of the scent of roasting human flesh, when Immolatus's pleasant dream shifted. He began to dream of fleas. Dragons are not bothered by fleas. Lesser animals are bothered by fleas, animals not blessed with scales, animals with skin and fur. Yet, Immolatus dreamed of fleas, dreamed of a flea biting him. The bite was not painful, but it was annoying, stinging. The dragon dreamed of the flea, dreamed of scratching the flea, and drowsily lifted a hind leg for the purpose. The flea ceased biting, and the dragon settled down once more at peace, when that damnable stinging began again, this time in a different spot. The flea had jumped from one place to another. Now seriously annoyed, Immolatus roused suddenly and angrily from his sleep. Early morning sunlight brightened his cavern, filtering through an air shaft that opened into the side of the mountain. Immolatus twisted his huge head, eyes glaring around to discover the pest, which was somewhere on his left shoulder, his jaws snapping to make short work of it. Immolatus was astounded to see not a flea on his shoulder, but a human. Eh? he roared, taken completely by surprise. The human was clad in armor and a sheepskin cloak and sat perched upon Immolatus's great shoulder sat there as coolly as one of those god-cursed knights astride a war-horse. Immolatus glared, shocked beyond measure at such audacity, and the human jabbed the point of a sword painfully into the dragon's flesh. "'You have a loose scale here, my lord dragon,' said the human, lifting the scale, which was the size of a large piece of flagstone and about as heavy. "'Did you know that?' His mind fuddled with his dream and the soporific effects of goat meat. Immolatus sucked in a deep breath, 
prepared to blast this irritating creature into the next plane of non-existence. The brimstone breath caught in his throat, however, as his mind woke up a bit more and informed him that he would not only fry the unwelcome intruder, but his left shoulder as well. Immolatus gargled a bit, swallowed the flame that had been bubbling in his stomach. He had other weapons, a goodly number of magical spells, although these required effort to use on the dragon's part, and he was too lazy to bring to mind the complicated words required for their casting. His best and most effective weapon was fear. His enormous red eyes, their pupils were larger than the human's head, stared into the dark eyes of the human, and he brought into that small mind images of her own death. Death by fire, death by tooth and claw, death by rolling over on top of her and squashing her into a bloody pulp. The human wavered beneath this assault. She shivered and grew pale, but at the same time the sword blade bit deeper. I don't suppose, my lord, said the human with a slight quaver in her voice, a quaver she controlled and suppressed, that you've ever cut up a chicken for a stew pot. Am I right? I thought so. A pity. Because if you had cut up a chicken, my lord, you would know that this tendon, which runs right along here, jab, jab, poke, poke with the sword blade, controls your wing. If I were to cut this tendon, the blade dug in a little deeper, you could not fly. Immolatus had never cut up a chicken. He generally ate them whole, several dozen at a time. But he was well acquainted with the construction of his own body. He was also well acquainted with injuries to his wings, injuries that left him a prisoner in his cave, unable to fly and to hunt, suffering the pangs of hunger and of thirst. You are powerful, my lord, said the human. You are skilled in magic. You could kill me with a snap of your jaws, but not before I have inflicted a considerable amount of damage on you. By now Immolatus had lost his irritation. He had overcome his rage. He wasn't hungry. The goat had seen to that. The dragon was beginning to be fascinated. The human was respectful, deferring to him as my lord most appropriate and suitable. The human had been afraid, but she had conquered her fear. Immolatus applauded such courage. He was impressed with her intelligence, her ingenuity. He wanted to continue their conversation, which he found intriguing. He could always kill her later. Climb down off my shoulder, he said. I'm getting a crick in my neck trying to see you. I am sorry for that, my lord, said the human. But you must see that moving would put me at a considerable disadvantage. I will deliver my message from here. I won't harm you, for the time being at least. And why would you spare me, my lord? Let us say that I am curious. I want to know why in the name of our fickle queen you are here. What do you want of me? 
What is so important that you risk death to speak to me? I can tell you all that from where I sit, my lord, said the human. Confound it, the dragon roared. Come down at eye level. If I do decide to slay you, I will give you fair warning first. I will allow you to put up your pitiable defense, if for nothing else than for my own amusement. Agreed? The human considered the proposal, decided to accept it. She jumped lightly from the dragon's shoulder to land on the stone floor of his cave, the oh-so-empty stone floor of his cave. Immolatus regarded the emptiness with gloomy melancholy. It cannot be the lure of my treasure that brought you, not unless you have a burning desire to collect rocks. Sighing deeply, he rested his gigantic head upon a stone pillow, which placed the human level with his eyes. That is better, more comfortable. Now, who are you and why have you come? My name is Kitiara Uthmetar, she began. Immolatus rumbled. Uthmetar, it sounds salamnic. He glowered, having second thoughts about slaying her later rather than sooner. I have little love for Salamniks. Yet you respect us, said Kitiara proudly. As we respect you, my lord. She bowed. Not like the rest of the foolish world, who laugh when dragons are mentioned, and claim they are no more than kinder tales. Kinder tales? Immolatus reared his head. Is that what they say of us? Indeed, my lord. No songs of conflagration, of holocaust? No tales of burning cities and scorched bodies? No stories of murdered babies and stolen treasure? We are— Immolatus could barely speak for his indignation. We are— Tender tales. That is what you have become, my lord, sadly, Kitiara added. Immolatus knew that he and his brothers and sisters and cousins had been asleep for many decades, centuries even, but he had thought that the awe in which dragons were held, the stories of their magnificent deeds, the fear and loathing they engendered, would have been passed down through the ages. Think back to the old days, Kitiara continued. Think back to the days of your youth. How many times did parties of knights seek you out to slay you? A great many, Immolatus said. Ten or twenty at a time, arriving at least twice a year. And how many times did thieves enter your lair, bent on securing your treasure, my lord? Monthly, said the dragon, his tail twitching at the memories. More often than that, if there happened to be a goodly number of dwarves in the area. Pesky creatures, dwarves. And how often in this day and age have thieves tried to sneak in and steal your treasure? I have no treasure to steal, Immolatus shouted in pain. But the thieves don't know that, Kitiara argued. How many times have you been attacked in your cave? 
I would venture to guess the answer is none, my lord. And why is that? It is because no one believes in you anymore. No one knows of your existence. You are nothing but a myth, a legend, a story to be laughed at over a mug of cold ale. Immolatus roared, a bellow that shook the walls and sent rivulets of rock dust cascading down from the cavern's ceiling, a bellow that caused the ground to quake and forced the human to cling to a handy stalactite for support. It is true, the dragon gnashed his teeth savagely. What you say is true. I never thought of it that way before. I sometimes wondered, but I had always supposed it was fear that kept them away, not, not obliviousness. Queen Takesis intends to see to it that they remember, my lord, Kitiara said coolly. Does she? Immolatus muttered and shifted his great bulk. He scraped his claws across the stone floor, leaving gouge marks in the rock. Perhaps I misjudged her. I thought, well, never mind, it is not important. And so she has sent you with a message for me. Kidiara bowed. I am sent by General Ariakis, head of the army of Queen Tachesis, with a message to Immolatus, greatest and most powerful of Her Majesty's dragons. Kidiara proffered the scroll. Will it please your lordship to read it? Immolatus waved a claw. You read it to me. I have difficulty deciphering the chicken scratches of humans. Kidiara bowed again, unrolled the scroll, and read the words. When she came to, Four times before you have spurned my command, there will not be a fifth. I am losing patience. Immolatus cringed a bit in spite of himself. He could hear quite distinctly his queen's furious voice behind those words. But how was I supposed to know that the world had come to such a pass? Immolatus muttered to himself. Dragons forgotten, or worse, laughed at, despised. Take upon your human form and return to sanction with the bearer of this my ring, there to receive your orders from Ariakis, soon to be general of my dragon armies. Human form! Immolatus snorted a gout of flame from his nostrils. I won't, he said grimly. The world has forgotten dragons, has it? Then they will soon come to recognize their error. They will see me in my glory. I will fall upon them like a thunderbolt. They will come to know dragons then by our dark queen. They will think that she has snatched the fiery sun from the heavens and hurled it into their midst. Kitiara pursed her lips. Immolatus glared at her. Well, what is it? If you think I am worried about disobeying the orders of Tachesis, I'm not he said petulantly. Who is she to name herself queen over us? The world was given to us to do with as we liked, and then she came among us making promises, a different promise with each of her five mouths. 
And where did those promises lead us? To the sharp end of some knight's lance, or worse, torn to pieces by some god-cursed gold dragon. And that is precisely what will happen if you proceed with your plan, my lord, said Kittyara. Immolatus growled and the mountain creaked. Smoke curled from between his fangs, his lips pulled back. You are beginning to bore me, human. Take care. I find that I am starting to hunger. Go out there into the world, and what will you do? Kitiara asked, gesturing toward the exit hole of the dragon's cavern. Destroy a few houses, burn some barns. You may even wreck a castle or two. A few hundred people will die. She shrugged. And what happens? You cannot kill everyone. The survivors band together. They come looking for you and they find you, alone, without support, abandoned by your brethren, forgotten by your queen. The gold dragons come too, and the silver, for there is nothing to stop them. You are mighty, Lord Immolatus, but you are one and they are many. You will fall. Immolatus's tail lashed and the mountain shuddered. The human was not daunted. She took a step forward, daring to come nearer the huge teeth that could have bitten her in twain with a single snap of the dragon's jaws. Though his anger burned like brimstone in his gut, Immolatus could not help but be impressed with the human's courage. Great Lord, listen to me. Her Majesty has a plan. Kittyara explained. She has wakened her dragons, all her dragons. When the time is right, she will call all her dragons to war. Nothing on Kryn will be able to withstand her fury. Kryn will fall to her might. You and your kind will rule the world in the Queen's name. And when will that glorious time come? Immolatus demanded. I do not know, my lord, said Kittyara humbly. I am only a messenger, and therefore not privy to my commander's secrets. But if you come back with me to the camp of General Ariakis in human form, as Her Majesty recommends, for it is requisite that we keep all knowledge of your return secret, you will undoubtedly learn all there is to know. Look at me, Immolatus snarled. Look at my magnificence. And you have the audacity to ask me to diminish and demean myself by squeezing into a weak, soft, flabby, puny, squishy body such as the one you inhabit? I do not ask such a sacrifice of you, my lord, said Kittyara, bowing. Your queen asks of you. I can tell you this, my lord Immolatus. You are Her Majesty's chosen. You alone have been asked to come forth into this world at this time to accept this difficult challenge. None of the others have been so honored. Her Majesty required the best, and she came to you. None of the others? Immolatus asked, surprised. None, my lord. You are the only one of her dragons to be entrusted with this important task. Mimolatus heaved a deep sigh. 
a sigh that stirred up centuries of rock dust, enveloping the human in a cloud and setting her coughing and choking. Just another example of the pitiful nature of the form he was being asked to assume. Very well, said Immolatus. I will take on human form. I will accompany you to the camp of this commander of yours. I will listen to what he has to say. Then I will decide whether or not to proceed. The human attempted to make some response, but she was having difficulty catching her breath. Leave me, said the dragon. Wait for me outside. Altering form is demeaning enough without having you standing there gawking at me. The human bowed again. Yes, my lord. She laid her hand on the end of a rope dangling down from the air shaft, a rope the dragon had not noticed until now. Grasping hold, she climbed it nimbly to the top of the cavern and crawled out the air shaft, hauling the rope up after her. Immolatus watched this proceeding grimly. After the human had disappeared, he grasped a boulder in his red claw and jammed the boulder into the air shaft, wedging it in the hole tightly so that no other intruder could again sneak inside. The cavern was now darker than he liked it and less airy. The sulfurous fumes of his own breath were starting to make the place stink. He'd have to open another air shaft at considerable cost and trouble to himself. Humans, blast them. Nuisances. They deserve to be burned, all of them. He'd see to that later. In the meantime, it was only right and natural that Queen Tachesis should turn to him for aid. Though he considered her selfish and scheming, arrogant and demanding, Immolatus could not fault Her Majesty's intelligence. Kittyara waited on the mountainside for the dragon to join her. The experience had been a grueling one. She freely admitted that she never wanted to undertake another like it, so long as she lived. She was exhausted. The strain of controlling her fear, of trying to outwit the quick-thinking creature, had drained her almost past her endurance. She felt as weak as if she had marched twelve leagues in full-plate armor and fought a prolonged battle in the process. Slumping down among the rocks, she gulped water from her flask, then rinsed her mouth, trying to rid herself of the taste of fire. Tired though she was, she was pleased with herself, pleased with the success of her plan, pleased but not surprised. Kittyara had yet to meet the male of any species, dragon or otherwise, who was immune to flattery. And she would have to keep piling it on thick during the journey back to Sanction in order to keep her arrogant and potentially lethal companion tractable. Kittyara slumped down on a boulder, rested her head in her arms. A man in armor came running toward her. His mouth opened, screaming, his face contorted with fear and pain. But she knew him. Father! Kittyara sprang to her feet. He rushed straight for her. He was on fire, his clothes burning, his hair burning. He was being burned alive. 
his flesh sizzling and bubbling. Father! Kitiara screamed. The touch of a hand woke her. Come along, worm, said a grating voice. Kitiara rubbed the sleep from her eyes, wished she could rub its grit from her brain. She looked closely at the corpse as she passed it. She was relieved to see that the man had been a foot shorter than Gregor Uthmetar. Still, Kit could not repress a shudder. The dream had been very real. The dragon poked her in the back with a long, sharp nail. Keep moving, slug. I want to be done with this onerous task. Kittyara wearily increased her pace. The next five days were going to be long. Very long indeed. Chapter 9 Ivor of Langtree was known throughout the surrounding countryside as the Mad Baron. His neighbors and tenants did truly think he was crazy. They loved him, they nearly worshipped him. But as they watched him ride his galloping steed through their villages, jumping haycarts and scattering chickens, waving his plumed hat as he dashed past, they would shake their heads when he was gone, clean up the debris, and say to themselves, Aye, he's daft, is that one. Ivor Langtree was in his late thirties, scion of a Salamnic knight, Sir John of Langtree, who'd had the good sense to pack up his household and quietly leave Salamnia during the turmoil following the cataclysm, traveling south with his family to an inlet on the New Sea. Finding a secluded valley, he'd built a wooden stockade and established his home. He worked the land while his lady wife took in, fed, and clothed the poor exiles driven from their homelands when the fiery mountain fell upon Crin. A great many of the exiles chose to live near the stockade and help defend it against marauding goblins and savage ogres. The years passed. The eldest Langtree son succeeded his father. The younger sons went off to war, fighting for causes that were just and honorable. If these causes happened to pay well, the sons brought their fortune home to the family coffers. If not, the sons had the satisfaction of knowing they had acted nobly, and when they returned home, the family coffers supported them. The daughters worked among the people, easing poverty and helping the sick, until they married and went forth to spread the good work their lady mother had begun. The land prospered. The fortress became a castle, surrounded by a small city, the city of Langtree. Several small towns and villages sprang up in the wide valley. More were established in a neighboring valley, all of their people swearing allegiance to the Langtree family. So prosperous did the Langtrees become that John III decided to call himself Baron and deem his landholdings a barony. The villagers and city dwellers were proud to consider that they belonged to a barony and were more than willing to make their lord happy by so doing. After the first Baron of Langtree, sons came and sons went, mostly went, for the Langtrees loved nothing more than a thumping good battle and were always being carried back to the castle by their grieving comrades, half or wholly dead. 
The current baron was a second son. He had not expected to become baron, but had ascended to that title on the untimely death of his older brother, who had fallen while defending one of the outlying holdings against a tribe of hobgoblins. As a younger son, Ivor had been expected to earn his living with his sword. This he had done, though not quite according to time-honored fashion. Having taken stock of his abilities and natural gifts, Ivor had come to the conclusion that he would do better hiring other men to fight with him than he would by hiring himself out to other men. Ivor was an excellent leader, a good strategist, brave but not foolhardy, and a firm believer in the knight's oath. My honor is my life, if not the grinding and binding rules of the measure. A small man, some mistook him for a kender, a mistake they did not make more than once. Ivor was slender and dark, with a swarthy complexion, long black hair, and large brown eyes. Men were wont to say of Ivor that though he was only five foot two, his courage stood six foot four. Ivor was wiry and tough, clever in battle and deceptively strong. His plate armor and chain mail weighed more than some full-grown men. He rode one of the largest horses in the barony or out of it, and rode it well. He loved to fight, and he loved to gamble. He loved ale, and he loved women, mostly in that order, which was the way he'd come by his nickname, the Mad Baron. Having been most reluctantly made a baron by the death of his brother— Ivor had interviewed the stewards and the secretaries who undertook the daily running of the barony, and, finding they were sound in their jobs and trustworthy, he placed them in charge and continued to do what he liked to do best, train men for battle, and then find battles for them to fight. Thus the barony thrived, and so did Ivor, whose exploits were the stuff of legend, and whose mercenaries were much in demand. He had no need of money. He was offered more jobs than he could possibly accept, and chose only those that suited him. The promise of steel had no power to sway him. He would turn his back on a sum large enough to build another castle if he deemed the cause unjust. He would spend money like water and his own blood in the same manner to fight for those who could pay only with their grateful blessings. Another reason he was called mad. There was a third reason, too. Ivor, Baron of Langtree, worshipped an ancient god, a god known to have left Crin long ago. This god was Kiri Joleth, formerly a god of the Salamnic Knights. Sir John of Langtree had never lost faith in Kiri Joleth. The knight had carried his faith from Salamnia with him, and he and his family had kept that faith alive, a sacred fire in their hearts, a fire that was never permitted to die. Ivor made no secret of his faith, though he was often ridiculed for it. He would laugh good-naturedly and, just as good-naturedly, give the jokester a buffet on the head. Ivor would then pick up his detractor, brush him off, and, when the jokester's ears had ceased ringing, advised him to have respect for another's beliefs. 
if he could not respect those beliefs himself. His men might not believe in Kiri Joliffe, but they believed in Ivor. They knew he was lucky, for they had seen him escape death in battle by a whisker more times than they could count. They watched their mad baron pray openly to Kiri Joliffe before he rode into battle, though never a sign or a word did he have that the god answered those prayers. It is not a general's business to take time to explain to every blasted foot-soldier his plans for the battle, the Mad Baron used to say with a laugh. So I don't suppose that it is the immortal general's business to explain his plans to me. <laughs> Soldiers are a superstitious lot. Anyone gambling on a daily basis with death tends to put his trust in luck-bringing objects in rabbit's feet and charmed medallions and locks of ladies' hair. More than one, therefore, whispered a little prayer to Kiri Joliffe before the charge. More than one carried a bit of bison fur into the fray, the bison being an animal sacred to Kiri Joliffe. While it might not help, it could not hurt. The Mad Baron was the nobleman to whom Caramon and Raistlin were going to present themselves. Caramon carried in a small leather pouch that he wore next to his skin the precious letter of introduction and recommendation, written by Antimedes, addressed to Baron Ivor of Langtree. More valuable than steel to the brothers, the letter represented the hopes and plans of both the twins. This letter was their future. Antimides had not told them much about Ivor of Langtree. He had not told them his nickname, thinking that they might find this disquieting. The twins were considerably disconcerted, therefore, when they disembarked from their ship and asked for the way to the barony of Ivor of Langtree. They were met with wide grins and shaking heads and knowing looks and the pronouncements, Ah, here's another couple of loonies come to join the Mad Baron. I do not like this, Caramon, said Raistlin one night, about two days' journey from the Baron's castle, where, according to one peasant, the Mad Baron was making a mustard. I don't think the fellow meant mustard, Raist, said Caramon. I think he meant muster. It's what you do when you recruit men for... I know what the fool meant, Raistlin interrupted impatiently. He paused a moment to give his complete attention to the rabbit simmering in the stew pot. And that's not what I was talking about. What I don't like is the way we are met with winks and jibes whenever we mention Ivor of Langtree. What did you hear about him in town? Raceland disliked entering towns, where he was certain to draw stares and gapes and gasps, to become the object of pointing fingers, hooting children, and barking dogs. The twins had taken to making their nightly camp off the road outside of villages, where Raceland would either rest from the day's travels, or, if he felt well enough, would roam the fields of the woods, searching for herbs that he used for spell components, healing, and cooking. Caramon walked into town for news, supplies, and to check to make certain they were traveling in the right direction. At first, Caramon was reluctant to leave his twin alone, 
But Raistlin assured him that he was in very little danger, and this was true. More than one potential footpad, seeing the sun glisten on Raistlin's golden skin and glitter in the crystal ball atop the obviously magical staff, had skulked off to try his luck elsewhere. Indeed, the twins were rather disappointed that they had not had a chance to try their newfound martial talents on anyone during the long journey. Caramon sniffed hungrily at the rabbit. The twins, short on money, were reduced to eating one meal a day that was one they had to catch themselves. Isn't it done yet? I'm starving. It looks done to me. A hare sunning itself on a rock would look done to you, Raistlin returned. The potatoes and onions are nowhere near cooked enough, and the meat must stew another half hour at least. Caramon sighed and tried to forget the rumblings in his stomach by answering his brother's earlier question. It is kind of odd, he admitted. Whenever I ask about Ivor of Langtree, everyone laughs and makes cracks about the Mad Baron, but they don't seem to talk about him in a bad way, if you know what I mean. No, I do not, Raistlin said, glowering. He had a low opinion of his brother's powers of observation. The men smile and the women sigh and say he's a lovely gentleman. And if he's mad, then some other parts of Ancelon we've been through could use his kind of madness. The roads here are maintained. The people are well fed. Their houses are well built and kept in repair. No beggars in the streets. No bandits on the highways. Crops in the fields. Here's what I've been thinking. You. Thinking, Raistland snorted. Caramon didn't hear. He was concentrating on the pot, trying to hurry the rabbit. What were you thinking? Raistlin asked at last. Huh? I don't know. Let me see. Yeah, I remember. I was thinking that maybe they called this Ivor the Mad Baron the same way we used to call Weird Megan Weird Megan. I mean, I always thought the woman was cracked. But you said she wasn't and that she was malingered. Maligned, Raistlin corrected, casting a severe eye on his brother. That's it, Caramon returned, nodding sagely. That's what I meant to say. They mean the same thing, don't they? Raistlin gazed out to the road, where a steady stream of men, young and old, walked or rode, all headed for Langtree Castle where the Baron had his training grounds. Many of the men were obviously veterans, such as the two Raistlin was watching now. Both wore chainmail corselets over leather tunics, lined with strips of leather at the bottom, which formed a short skirt. Swords rattled at their hips, their arms and faces and legs bare beneath the tunic were seamed with great ugly wheels. The two veterans had come across a friend, apparently, for the three men flung their arms around each other, slapped each other on the back. Caramon let out a wistful sigh. Would you look at those battle scars? Someday— Hush, Raistlin ordered peremptorily. 
I want to listen to what they're saying. He drew back his hood in order to hear better. So, it looks like you did well for yourself over the winter, said one of the men, eyeing his friend's broad stomach. Too well, said the other, groaning. He wiped sweat from his forehead, though the sun was setting and the night air was cool. Between Maria's cooking and the tavern's ale, he shook his head gloomily, and the fact that my chain mail shrank, shrank, his friends hooted in derision. So it did, said the other aggrieved. You remember that time at the Munston siege when I had to stand guard duty in the pouring rain? The damned chain mails pinched me ever since. My brother-in-law's a blacksmith, and he said he'd seen many a mail shirt shrink in the wet. Why do you think the smith dunks his swords in water when he's forging them? Answer me that. He glared at his comrades. To make the metal tighten up, that's why. I see, said one of the men, winking at the other. And I bet he also told you to throw out that old chain mail and order a whole new set. Well, sure, said the rotund soldier. I couldn't be joining up with the mad baron wearing shrunken chain mail, now could I? No, no, said his friends, rolling their eyes and grinning out of the corners of their mouths. Besides, said the other, there were moth holes. Moth holes, one said, about to burst from suppressed laughter. Moth holes in your armor? Iron moths, said the soldier with dignity. When I found holes in my mail, I thought they were caused by defective links, but my brother-in-law said that no, the links were fine. It's just that there are these moths that eat iron. This proved too much. One of the men collapsed in the road, wiping his streaming eyes. The other leaned weakly against a tree. Iron moths, said Caramon, deeply impressed. He glanced worriedly at his own brand-new, shiny chain-mail corselet, which he had purchased prior to leaving Haven, and of which he was enormously proud. Braced, take a look, will you? Are there any— Hush! Raistlin shot his brother a furious glance, and Caramon meekly subsided. Well, don't worry, said one of the men, slapping his chubby friend on the back. Master Quinnell will march that lard off of you soon enough. Don't I know it? The man sighed deeply. What's in store for us this summer? Any jobs in the offing? Have either of you heard? Nah. One of the men shrugged. Who cares? The Mad Baron picks his fights well, so long as the pay's good. Which it will be, said another. Five steel a week per man. Caramon and Raistlin exchanged glances. Five steel, said Caramon, awed. That's more in a week than I earned in months working on the farm. I am beginning to think you are right, my brother, said Raistlin quietly. If this baron is mad, there should be more lunatics like him.